This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Nick and Alessia Galakovic from TheBeardKing.com explained how they built a seven-figure business using video content. On today's episode, you'll learn why an entrepreneur chose to launch on Kickstarter just to break even. In this episode, you'll learn what makes one product more likely to succeed than others, the rule of thumb when you're pricing for retailers, and how to create packaging appropriate for retailers. Today, I'm joined by Nate Barr from ZutilityTools.com. Zutility Tools makes surprisingly thin multi-tools. They put the tools that you need where you need them right in your wallet and was started in 2012 and based out of Portland, Maine. Welcome, Nate. Hey, good to be here. Hey, yeah, excited to have you here. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about your store and these uh, multi-tools that you sell. Sure. Well, um, I feel like it kind of frames the picture best to, to, to share where I started it, and that was on Kickstarter. I had this idea while I was working as a software engineer. This was a mechanical device, and uh, it was just a simple, simple idea. Uh, it's kind of like a, a, a widget in its most like basic sense. It's a piece of metal the size of a credit card, like you were describing, that has a whole bunch of cutouts in it that uh, that function as different tools, like an orange peeler, screwdrivers, you know, one that's meant for eyeglass screws, which is something that people don't commonly carry with them or are often trying to scramble for, and then something as you know creative as a door latch slip to help you break into those janitor closets. You know, you know when those those kind of occasions occur. Uh, and I, I realized this seemed like a perfect opportunity to try out Kickstarter because it seemed like uh, the right type of product and the right platform to, to see if there was any interest in it before I got going. And I put it on there. I had um, 2,000 supporters in just two weeks. Um, from there, the next step was to, to put up a Shopify store to be able to get continued sales. And I've just kind of rolled it from there. That's cool that you had an idea and it was almost like a let's see what happens approach to starting a business. You had this idea and you want to try Kickstarter out. So you went ahead with that. I think that that's a great kind of attitude to have for any entrepreneur just to kind of go out and see what happens, try it out. So you, um, the, 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 I've seen these, I've seen, I'm not sure if it's your product or products like this. I've always had this fear like, yeah, I w- really want this, but I, might, I feel like I'm putting my wallet and then go on an airplane or something and forget to take it out. Is it ever an issue when you go to an airport having a tool like this? You you know, I decided early on that uh, unlike some some devices that could be categorized in the same same product category uh, before mine existed, that I discovered after I had the idea that I wanted mine to be TSA compliant. So I left out some tools that had previously been on such a device, like a, a like a saw blade or a knife mm-hmm. edge, so that it would have nothing that TSA doesn't allow. So it is in fact TSA approved and. Nice. It doesn't, um, you know, it carries very nicely inside of a wallet or a purse and doesn't um, be, it's not uncomfortable at all, as well as TSA, you know, now is very familiar with these tools and realizes that they're, they're compatible. Early on, there were some headaches with consumers saying that TSA was confiscating them because at the end of the day, they are allowed to have 
final jurisdiction as to by each agent as to what they they want and sometimes mm-hmm. people just want to go on a power trip right yeah well that, that's definitely comforting here i don't have to uh, sweat while i'm waiting in line with uh, with a product like this so uh yeah that, that definitely went the our newest product is pretty neat the wild card it's a pocket-sized folding knife that fits in your in your wallet because it's only two millimeters thin so it's it's the most novel knife on the market it's it's a, a truly a work of steel origami and this one is not TSA compliant but I designed it with the same kind of mindset in mind so I designed it so that the blade can be removed if you found yourself accidentally at TSA so you can remove the blade and buy a replacement pack later mm. so try, trying to you know be very creative about all the approaches to these things not just accepting kind of industry standards and I think that's kind of played out in some of the other things we've done as well. Very cool. So you, you mentioned this a couple of times that you designed these products. I'm looking at them now and they do look like great designs. They look very sturdy. Did you have a background in this? Like you said, you're a software engineer, but you're creating a very, it looks like a, a, you know, a hard piece of hardware, a piece of tool that, that probably you know, requires a lot of knowledge about how to create. Did you have a background in this prior to, to uh, designing uh, these utility tools? Yeah, I actually went to college for mechanical engineering. So I mm. found my way into software engineering just through interest in doing startups. But, um, <laughs> but my origin was closer to where this product lies. Mm, very cool. It makes sense. Okay, so when you had this idea for creating a product like this, like you're saying, you didn't know if there were other, uh, I guess, competitors or other similar products out there. You knew that you had this idea yourself. What were the very first steps? Did you first put it up on Kickstarter or did you try to get some early prototypes made first? Like, what were the very first steps towards creating a, a product and eventually a business? Yeah, you know, in, in the software world, they talk a lot about the minimal viable product or the MVP. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first step wouldn't be just to like put the idea on Kickstarter as like a, um, a one-sentence statement or, or a crude drawing. In this case, it's such a simple mechanical device that you know surely I could have some kind of prototype. So I, I um, took it as far as uh, iterating on the design to the point where I was, I was satisfied with it, uh, creating prototypes to see that it worked, finding a manufacturer that could make this figuring out the pricing so that I knew when I was asking people for how much money um, I needed that I could actually accomplish what I was saying I could do. So, you know, for a Kickstarter project, the minimal viable product is is pretty far along. But um, it doesn't have to be all the way to being able to deliver it yet, which is the beauty of crowdfunding. You can see if there's interest in your product before you take on the financial risk of investing and setting up the products and business to see, does anybody care about this? Because you know, there's two things you risk by going farther. One is your money, but the other one I would almost argue is more important, and that's your time. Mm-hmm. And you, you'll spend a lot of time, and that equates to money and opportunity loss of other projects you could have been working on if you weren't working on the right project. So knowing early on, or as early on as possible, that there's interest in what you're doing and that there's a market fit for your product is really important. Mm, so did you have other product ideas that you were brewing around at the same time as, as this one? Yeah, I had been working on some other ideas that I thought had you know such huge potential that there was no way I couldn't work on them. And I compiled a list of ideas you know, just as I came up with them day by day, week by week, um, and kind of kept on going back to that list and, and 
um, reevaluating what I was working on so that I wouldn't just work on one thing for a decade, you know, because they tell you when you go to meetups or read books that you have to be determined and you can't give up. But uh, you also don't want to be stuck on the wrong project mm-hmm. and never get anywhere just because you spent your time on the wrong thing. So I took, I took this list and I, I uh, rated each of my ideas on the likelihood of success the potential outcome of like, you know, dollars that I thought this, this might be able to accomplish and how much time I thought it would take. And I scored each of those things and then multiplied them together for a final uh, total and then ranked all my ideas by that total to see which one was at the top. And when I had Pocket Monkey float to the top, it almost felt like one of those uh, data points that the pollsters in the last few weeks would have looked at and said, no, that's not right. That's not going to happen. But, you know, sometimes these things surprise you and you need to take the data seriously. In this case, I, it maybe took me a week or two to, to like fully digest what I was seeing, that I should put on hold this project that I had spent the last two years working on and pick up this other thing that, you know, instead of having a $100 million outcome opportunity, but going to take me another two years and have a 10% chance of, 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 of being successful. You know, pocket monkey in my mind was like at the, at the most I can make, you know, maybe a million dollars on this if everybody thought it was really cool. Um, but it was only going to take me a month to really know if this was on the right track and viable. And, you know, I thought, I thought the, the chance of success with this were pretty decent, maybe like 30% or, or maybe a little higher. Um, and so that score came out, came out above. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the high, the very analytical approach. You know, uh, me, uh, being a, a very engineering, uh, I guess, uh, focused approach to to coming up with the product idea. Um, so when you when you looked at these uh, these numbers, you looked at the, the rankings and everything. Uh, it, it it sounds like you weren't just looking at the raw what can make me the most money, right? I think this is a an issue, not an issue, but maybe not so much an issue now, but for a long time, especially in the software startup, software engineering world, there was always this idea of you know making a billion dollar exit, making hundreds of millions of dollars. You were saying that Pocket Monkey didn't necessarily have the kind of potential uh, revenue potential as some of the other ideas, but it sounds like it had a higher likelihood of success, or at least you would know sooner if it was a seed or not. It was that was that more important to you than the the actual revenue outcome or potential revenue? Well, I think um, you know once you take each of those components and put them together, the total pic- the total picture that it tells you um, is is worth paying attention to. You know, if you have a, so like in this case with Pocket Monkey, um, I wasn't going to spend a whole lot of time, and it seemed like I had a very high chance of success. Like it doesn't matter how much money it's going to make you. That's a pretty overwhelmingly interesting idea because you can take that and hopefully turn it into more. So mm-hmm. I've now overshot my estimate of as to what I thought Pocket Monkey would be worth, but um, I've been able to reinvest everything I've made back into growing the business because it's still, I think, uh, worth more in the future than it is, than it is today. And that's the same idea with, you know, looking at, uh, at a million dollar idea compared to a hundred million dollar idea and going for that one because you're, you're pointing yourself towards long-term success, which might be even greater than, than, um, um, your, your other idea just because, 
um, it builds on itself and you have success sooner and success begets success. Mm. You know, if you don't have anywhere to start from, um, you just spin your wheels. And I feel like that's probably a frustration that a lot of entrepreneurs can identify with that they've been trying for a long time and feel like they should have more success than they have had so far. And I think, I think a lot of people become discouraged after, you know, feeling that way for too long and just kind of fall back into, um, you know, normal nine to five job that, uh, you know, there's good merits to it. Some days I lament the fact that I don't have a, a traditional nine to five anymore. And I would love the opportunity to just, to just not have to, to take home any kind of stress of, of the business and just clock out at five and, and let the bigger picture be worried by, about by someone else. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, there's definitely, uh, to both. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I think that sometimes people do forget that you get a lot of things too, just from having a day job like this. The ability that like you're talking about, the ability to let someone else worry about paying the the paychecks rather rather than yourself. To to this date, I, I can look back and say I would be better off financially if I had just stuck with engineering and working nine to five. Uh, from when I graduated college to now, and just you know, like saved my money. And piled it, you know, like reinvested it in the stock market, done those kind of things. Um, it's kind of like a, it, it's, it's a wise track to take. And so for, you know, a lot of people who are risk averse, it's, it's a great way to go. For me, I'm more satisfied now than I would be in that yeah. track just mm-hmm. because I don't enjoy um, doing what people tell me I should do. I want to do things differently, just like by design. You know, I, I have a hard time accepting anything that anybody else tells me to do. I want to try it myself to see if to see what the outcome is. And and then it might be the same as what they told me, but then I'll believe it. <laughs> yeah, let me learn my lesson my, so, myself. Yeah. I think you know you have to be willing to to like to sacrifice in order to to uh, to achieve what you want. Yeah. So so one thing that you're mentioning about how uh, success begets success and maybe or I think a great piece of advice you gave was that you want to try to get those wins as early as possible because again, I think if you go shoot too big, have too great of a goal right off the bat, you either have to hit a home run or you're going to strike out. There's no middle ground, right? You're either going to be successful or you're going to fail miserably. But you're saying that, you know, try to get to first base first, it might not be a billion dollar exit, but at least it will get you in the game and then like you're saying you have that encouragement you have the ability to actually practice and learn how to be an entrepreneur because you are in the game and then have the confidence have the kind of track record to keep on building on top of it so I think that's a great point that you know there's always this idea that you always want to dream big but you know definitely dream big but you want to try to break that down in a way where it's uh, you can almost reach these kind of almost like base camps along the way up the mountain so you don't have to shoot right for the, the summit right off the bat that's exactly right. Cool. So you you mentioned that one of the cr- pieces of criteria that you looked at when you were determining which product to go after was the likelihood for success. And you saw something in Pocket Monkey, which is the, the first uh, product that you offer, the first Kickstarter campaign, that made you realize that this was going to be much more successful, much more likely to succeed than the other products. What did you see in it that made you say that? With a product like Pocket Monkey, it's not like you have to to try to search out the uh, the end user, you know, since anybody can be a, a user of a, of a multi tool and want to have something on them at all times. Uh, there's like a hundred million people in the country that you can identify as potential users. So you just have to put it out there, and it's going to find its mark. As opposed to something that's very niche, you know, trying to get your to get it in front of your audience is is a real challenge. 
oftentimes, especially with consumer products. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense that there's such a huge market for that you're likely to end up landing somewhere into some kind of uh, target customer. So was this, um, when you talk about it, it, it all sounds, makes sense to me, right, that there is, uh, you don't have to explain what a multi-tool is. There are a lot of people already buying multi-tools. Was this a, a hunch that you went with? You know, obviously a very uh, measured hunch. But, or did you actually, did you go out and do any market research or did you look at any, I guess just, just just for any listeners out there that are, are trying to take this approach to break down what's a good product or not, are there tools or websites that you reference to determine if there was going to be a, a big market? I want to say that I'm a bad example in this case, but but maybe not. Maybe this is um, oftentimes uh, like what people do and, and do when they end up having that, something that's successful. I just had a had an instinctual feeling that you know, because it resonated so strongly with me that this, this was a product that I wanted. Like I, the, uh, the reason that I knew so strongly that I wanted this thing was that I, um, my, my first instinct when I realized I needed something like this was to go on the internet and try to find it. And when mm. I couldn't find it, then I, I realized, wait a minute, this is a really, I, I can't believe this isn't here. This is quite an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sounds like obviously a a need that you had and it almost, to you, I've heard other entrepreneurs say this too, where you almost feel like this should already exist in the world. And if it doesn't, then, you know, maybe that, that intuition that you're talking about is a sign that you should be the one that, that brings it to the world. Um, so you, you uh, obviously you're saying you had a lot of different ideas. You chose this one because there was a high, higher likelihood of success, or at least you'd be able to know sooner than, than later. What was the timeline we're talking about here? From the, from the very first, I guess, inception of the idea to, let's say, having the very first uh, early prototypes being built. How long did that take? One month from when I, I started thinking about the idea and, and drawing sketches for it to when I had uh, the first prototype. Um, but in that time, I probably did a hundred, like one hundred inter- iterations on on the design. So I was pretty focused on it during that time. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, I you know it took me a long time to find a manufacturer. I, everyone I talked to said it, it uh, wasn't a project they were interested in. It, it sounded too complex. A lot of them said, or you know, the price point that I was trying to achieve, they just thought wasn't doable. So pretty much everybody was telling me like, you need to go to China with this. Um, but it, it wasn't something that I ever took seriously. I felt like as soon as I sold it over there, um, or as soon as I had it manufactured over there, I would end up seeing copies of my product coming onto the market mm. over here. Um, some of them maybe by other manufacturers, but most likely the same manufacturer that I had paid to have their tooling set up to, to start producing these things would just be produ- overproducing them and selling them out the back door. It's a it's a really common problem that that uh, people are familiar with. Mm, so I didn't want to to like be competing against myself, where the competition had uh, essentially zero cost of doing business, and with platforms like Amazon and eBay, um, and the the current uh, laws in the country, it's extremely difficult to to stomp out those types of uh, of infringing products. So they're they're hugely damaging. Um, it also just felt like the right thing to do, you know, um, I, I could, uh, make it over there and save a few bucks or I could do it here and have it be a product that I could believe more in that I would have more of a hand in making that I could have, uh, you know, a real 
eye for quality with because I could talk more directly with the the, um, the manufacturer and iterate more quickly with them so that it would be the product that I wanted it to be. And those felt like such compelling reasons that I kept on searching for someone to do it domestically and finally found someone. Um, it cost more than I would have liked. So the first Kickstarter or the Kickstarter that I did sold it for sold Pocket Monkey for twelve dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, it cost me about seven for each one that I made, and that didn't include having to like put some kind of packaging around it. That didn't include um, the mailing that I was going to have to do. Um, so I'm pretty sure I just about broke even. Um, not even pay, you know not paying myself anything on on the project, but I proved that there was potential for this product at this retail price because I mm-hmm. figured twelve dollars was like where I saw it selling well at retail, and I didn't want to put it on Kickstarter at um, at thirty dollars and have two people back it and wonder hmm would it have done better uh, at, a, at a lower price? I just put it right at the point where uh, I thought um, it would sell at retail and wanted to prove it out. It was, you know, for me, it was all about proving it as well as getting the money to, you know, to get started without having to fork out all that money on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that those are interesting considerations that people should take into, into account. Yeah. So you, you were selling this, like you're saying, pretty much at cost, uh, you're just breaking even on it, but you just wanted to see if people would buy it at this price. And then later you'd figure out how to reduce the costs. That, that's the important stuff there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's uh, important to point out. In low volume, it's, uh, it's, it's expensive. And um, the volumes, you know, the investment needed to get the, the price down, um, you know, I eventually spent almost $100,000 setting up uh, the manufacturing for Pocket Monkey. And if I had said my project goal for starting this project is, is $175,000, you know, the cost of setting up plus you know, at least what it would cost me to, for the, the raw materials to produce stuff. Um, nobody would have taken the project seriously and it never would have gotten off the ground. So you kind of have to start small, have a small win, just like you're saying, get on first base and then look towards the next step of, okay, now I've proved this out. Um, you know, how do I get to, to there? And for me, it was selling the product on Shopify and trying to bootstrap the business through through the money I could make, continuing to sell the product once I had proven the the business the, the viability of the product, I, I also had to put some of my own money in at that point. But it felt much less risk averse because I knew that this that there was market potential for this thing. The customers wanted it. Yeah, so let's talk about that first Kickstarter again for for the uh, the Pocket Monkey. It says your Pocket Monkey, the wallet utility tool. the The goal was uh, just four thousand five hundred dollars, which is probably one of the lowest goals I've seen for for anybody that's on been on this podcast. So you obviously beat the goal, raising over twenty seven thousand dollars. What? How did you set that that initial goal of uh, just forty five hundred dollars? It was just the the bare minimum cost to cover the uh, the setup costs um, for the run. Uh, I mean, I was going to lose money at that at that point, but it was it was all about proving it out, and it was an amount of money that I felt squeamish about just forking over to set up manufacturing for something that you know. When I asked my friends what they thought about this idea, um, I would say half of them told me they 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 couldn't see the potential there, and that didn't seem like a like a smart thing to be putting your your money into when you know you're working hard and you're 
earning it slowly. Mm-hmm. So the, the 4,500 again was just to get to get things rolling. Um, and you weren't ever concerned at all about, let's say that it was successful and you were able to continue selling these, lots of demand. You were never concerned about, man, am I ever going to be able to turn a profit on this? Am I ever going to be able to reduce the cost? Like that was never a concern for you? No, um, I figured I would cross that bridge when I got there. Yeah. <laughs> that that uh, I didn't want to waste my time uh, working on something that that uh, wasn't relevant. If nobody cared about this, then why would mm-hmm. I spend mm-hmm. another day thinking about how to, to like reduce the cost to get it to where it needs to be um, if, if no one cares? So the first step was just figure out if anybody cares and, and then figure out if it's worth spending more time on this project. And the answer was yes. So then I, you know, I spent more time, quite a bit more time. It took me, I think, almost a year to get, um, to get the manufacturing set up. We, I was able to keep it here in the U.S. again and um, and this time was able to to cut the cost, you know, um, by like down to you know maybe a third of, of what it or a quarter no, a third or half of what it uh, initially cost, um, which was pretty good. Yeah, that's great for retail. The, the general rule of thumb is it needs to cost um, one. You have to have five times multiple on your cost of goods in order to be able to really get to retail successfully. Mm, okay. So that let's go, let's go talk about the pricing there. How did you figure out this? Uh, like you're saying it was $12 of Kickstarter campaign. Now looking on the, the site now, it's a $14 price point. How did you determine these, these price points? What was it just kind of a hunch or like, did you put any numbers behind For it? the price? I put up a, an AB test on, on the website. I tried out, um, selling the product for for twelve dollars, I tried selling it for ten. I tried selling it for fifteen, and I saw what the sell through rate was, and it dropped off uh, when when you went up to fifteen enough that you actually made more money at twelve, mm. and it didn't really change the result when you went to nine. So it just made sense to to have it there. So I I tested the different pricing uh, and and found that that was the the, the most the most beneficial. So was this on your, your own site? Was it on Kickstarter? Where are you doing this test? Yeah, on Kickstarter, it's frustrating. You have to just launch into, into your, your final uh, pro, you know, your final version of the, of the, the project without any way to, to test anything uh, on their platform. You can do stuff on your own, but you know, it's kind of a different beast once you put the project on the, on the site. So it's frustrating that you have to lock in your price. You have to lock in your goal before you really know what people are willing to pay for it and how much, how, what kind of goal is, is, is reasonable. Um, I, I did it on Shopify. So I had to just lock in a price. I, my gut said $12 would be the amount that for the product category would sell well. So I set it there on Kickstarter. I played around with it on Shopify once the project had ended and found that my hunch was actually pretty spot on. Mm. That was what optimized income. So the, the traffic that you're getting from the success of this campaign and I guess just the, the, the awareness of it from the promotion of this campaign was what was driving traffic to your, your own store. And then from there, you could do some A-B testing with that traffic. Yeah, especially on, on Reddit. Um, at, at the time, Kickstarter had a rule that you couldn't sell multiples of anything that was a product. Uh, they've since softened the terms a little bit. Um, they're still pretty uh, weird about it. So at the time, what I did was I posted, I had a friend who, was, who really liked the project. He posted it on, on Reddit and I told him to point 
his URL towards the uh, the web the, the Shopify website instead of the Kickstarter project, so that people could um, could buy multiples over there because it was near the, the holiday time that I was launching this thing, and my manufacturer had promised that he could turn around these parts in um, ah, man I want to say it was three weeks. Um, coming from a, a initially out of college, I worked as a product development engineer and we would do prototypes all the time where people would turn stuff around in 48 hours and they never missed a deadline. So I was inclined to believe this guy because he, he, he sounded believable, but uh, it took more like 16 weeks. And so it was quite a catastrophe when people thought they were getting Christmas presents and they weren't. The upshot was since I had pointed Reddit towards the Shopify site, I continued to have a lot of traffic even after the Kickstarter project ended. Oh, so this was like a Reddit post that, you know, obviously Reddit will eventually, uh, I guess, slowly decay a, a post and bump it down over time. But people were still finding the, the post and still coming to your your store from this Reddit post? Yeah, a large amount of our traffic was was from there. Oh, wow. Very cool. For, for, for a decent amount of time. I see. Makes sense. Okay, cool. So again, a uh, very successful campaign, almost 2,000 backers uh, raising a little bit under $28,000, again, with a goal of just $4,500. So you got this you know, this influx of capital for you to, to start working with. And you said that you still had to set up manufacturing, set up everything you need to produce this at scale and had to almost spend $100,000 on it. So was the rest of it just your own money? Like how did you, how were you able to get the capital together to, to um, uh, prepare for a larger production run? Yeah, the, the larger production run was, um, a lot of it was me paying that down. I was fortunate enough that my, my um, wife, who was my, my girlfriend at the time, she and I lived together. I, I guess maybe we were engaged. She um, was my sugar mama, so <laughs> I, I had the uh, the home expe- the the apartment expenses paid for, so I could take my salary while I was working as a software engineer and dump it into um, funding the uh, the manufacturing setup. And she saw the potential as well, so she was cool with 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 going for it. To her credit, she even said, "It doesn't matter whether you you return a profit on this or not. I know it'll make you happy to see where this mm. goes." So your happiness is worth more to me than the money you're spending on. And that's why you married her. That sounds like a great partnership. <laughs> so, I, so then I married her. <laughs> cool. So let's talk about bootstrapping then. I think this is another situation that a lot of listeners will find themselves in where they don't have the capital and they're trying to make it work with just their own paychecks. Maybe they're in a situation where they can reduce a lot of their costs, living costs, and put a lot of their, their paycheck into their business. Uh, but it's still a very a precarious situation, right? Because you're funding a lot of into a project that could go into savings, could go into investments, like you were talking about early on. So you have to be very selective with how you spend your money. What was your? How do you guys decide? How did you decide that? How did you make sure that you were, even though you had the cash to to, to invest in the business, you didn't have to worry about paying the, the the living expense bills. How did you still though decide how to spend your money on your business? Yeah, I guess we just took it, you know, one step at a time. the The first question right out of the gates after the Kickstarter project was. How do we keep this going? And once you have a Kickstarter project, uh, just like you were saying, the posts on other places like Reddit decay over time. The same thing happens with with Kickstarter. You know, at first you're shown on the recently funded page, and then eventually you're no longer there. And a word of mouth at first is driving people to your site, but then that decays. So you go from having this this onslaught of traffic to just an anemic drip. And the question is. How can you continue 
the like, how can you continue sales and get to the next stage of, of even more sales, hopefully. And for me, it seemed like that uh, sales channel that was going to be successful was, was going to, to retailers, having them purchase the products from us as a manufacturer at a lower price, marking them up and reselling them to consumers in their, in their stores. Most of them are, that we work with are brick and mortar stores. Um, there are some online retailers as well. And we try to avoid anybody who's going to resell it on places like Amazon or eBay because they oftentimes don't play by the rules. It's very difficult to, to enforce, you know, figure out who they are and enforce your minimums. And there's no reason we can't just do it ourselves. Um, it's a platform that anybody can just put a product on. So it'd be foolish for us not to be the ones doing that. Mm-hmm. So getting to retail was the big question. And, uh, the, the first way that I thought of doing this was to go to a trade show so that I can get in front of a lot of people all at once. And I took the, um, the money that uh, would be required for that. I think, you know, once the Kickstarter had worked its way out, um, I kind of figured that, uh, there was like just enough left to, um, to, to gamble on going to the trade show. So I spent it on that and it, um, it, in one sense failed miserably. I think in the four days that we were there, I had 12 orders, um, each of which were like $120, you know, that people would buy, or maybe it was $240. They'd buy uh, 20, no, yeah, $120. It was $120 uh, because they'd buy 20 pocket monkeys at half price from, from retail. So I only made a few thousand dollars, but it cost um, about $7,000 to attend the show mm-hmm. to include all your costs. So I had, I had lost a lot of money, but I had proven that um, retailers were in fact interested. And I got a lot of valuable feedback from them at being there that I could then incorporate. You know, one thing that people kept telling me was the packaging wasn't right. Retail packaging, you know, needs to be very different from what is, is, um, acceptable or, or even desirable on Kickstarter. Mm. So that became the next thing to invest in. How do we get the packaging right? So we stuck with our existing manufacturer and just got the packaging right to see, okay, if we do that, can we then sell enough of these that it's going to be worth continuing down this road? And the answer was, um, yeah, we started getting more, more, more and larger orders. Um, we were losing a dollar on every single one that we sold, but it proved that, that it was ramping up. So that was the point that then I, I took the next step of, of getting the, the, uh, the price down so that we were actually making money on each one we were selling instead of losing money. So that was kind of like the logical set of steps that, um, we just kind of followed the, um, you know, like what needed to be done next. Yeah, I love that you are able to take these, like, you know, what you're calling failures and actually learn from them. You hear it all the time. You want to learn from your mistakes, learn from your failures, but you actually did get things out of, you might not have made your money back when it came down to the the, the actual return on investment for that particular day, those that particular week during that trade show, but you still got valuable feedback that you're able to take back that could be, you know, potentially more valuable than what you 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 invested in into the trade show itself. It kind of goes back to the original theme of looking at, um, you know, just a small win that like, if you take, you know, the idea of going for a million dollar idea instead of a hundred million dollar idea is, is to just get a short term win, worry about the long term later. And, Mm. you know, on Kickstarter, I was pricing things aggressively. 
And at the trade shows, I was doing the same. Worried about the, you know, thinking about the short term, worried about the long term later. I, lo- I love that approach. I think uh, it, it's a great way to get people that are really hesitant about starting business, hesitant about executing just to get out there and start playing the game and then seeing where it takes you rather than trying to plan on this roadmap that takes you from point A to point B and all the stops along the way because we all know that it never goes the way that you plan it out, especially the longer term you look out. Um, so this feedback that, that you got about the retail packaging, tell us a little more about this. Like, What did it look like prior to, I guess, when you went to the trade show and what kind of particular specific uh, advice that you get on, on how to make it more retail friendly, especially for any listeners out there that are thinking about going towards uh, retailers as well? Yeah, sure. I started off thinking, okay, I want to exude quality. So I used craft paper that was printed on um, to attach the product to. And I used silver um, you know, coated uh, twist ties to attach the product to the, the packaging. And it looked nice. Um, it definitely gave you the idea that this was kind of a handcrafted artisan kind of kind of product, not just a run of the mill stamped out in volume and um, made from cheap cheap alloy and you know shipped across with uh, with a high carbon footprint. I mean, you know, we were talking to a very different customer and uh, going to retail. Everybody said, you know. How is this going to stay on here? This packaging is going to get damaged. It's going to get stolen. All these kind of questions that that um, didn't value the things that I had tried to embody. So it was challenging to figure out how to create packaging that continued to exude the um, like ideals and and properties behind this product. Uh, while accomplishing the things these retailers were saying they needed. Mm, okay, so what was the the step by step approach? Did you did you design this yourself? Did you hire someone to help you with with uh, creating more retail friendly packaging? I took a stab at it myself because um, you know I always like to I was trying to learn as much as possible, and I found that I you know once again I probably did fifty iterations of this packaging, and uh, it was kind of moving along, but. You know, you'd you would think you were, you'd be there. You'd walk away from a day, come back to it, look at the at the screen again, and say, "Oh God, how did I think yesterday that that was a good idea?" And <laughs> eventually, I, I found a graphic designer to work with, and she and I worked really well together because she would uh, have some ideas and send them over to me, and then I would kind of modify them and send them back to her as like a sketchback, and she would then play around with it some more and send it back. And so the two of us kind of iteratively giving each other feedback came to the, to the design that um, still to, to this day is pretty similar to, to the packaging style that we, that we were using. Mm, so were you still able to, I guess, uh, highlight the qualities that you wanted to highlight uh, when you had the Kickstarter packaging uh, now that you had this uh, more retail-friendly packaging? Yeah. The, uh, you know, one thing I chose to do was use a so we have a trap style blister it's this idea of like a piece of plastic that's sandwiched between um, two pieces of paper and you, you've seen these in the store um, oftentimes you've seen them with just the the blister tray um, like glued onto the front of a face card and it those ones uh, they're they're very commonly used as the packaging style for hardware items in a hardware store um, where it's just all about functionality and low cost, um, whereas the the having two pieces of paper together 
has a uh, has a better feel to it. It's thicker. Um, it's more rigid. It hides the uh, the face seal so that it uh, it feels more premium. And it costs more, but I thought it was worth it. So it was one of those things where you know financially it didn't seem like to make sense to use this type style of packaging, but. I thought that for the for the for the investment, I, I like the outcome. Mm, okay, makes sense. So you this we just only talked about the the very first Kickstarter campaign that was funded successfully, but you've had f- I think five total on there. It seems like you're returning back to Kickstarter every single time there's a new product that you're releasing through through Zutility tools. Is that the pro? So every time a new product idea comes along, first test the waters through Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, we're, um, we've continued to reinvest everything back into the business. Um, so we've been able to, to slowly do more of these, these uh, processes ourselves instead of relying on outside groups to do them. Um, but that's meant that we've had a lot of upfront costs to pay down because we don't have any investors. Kickstarter has continued to be our, our method of, of getting the next project off the ground without... Um, disrupting our stability, because if if we were to to launch a new product and take on the financial investment of getting it off the ground um, and and not have it be successful, you know we'd be going double or nothing on on each, each one of these these uh, essentially. So the Kickstarter community has been kind of our um, it, it's become our new sugar mama. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, uh, because you've had so much experience on Kickstarter, it looks like uh, 2012 was the first year you launched the the, the first campaign. Uh, what have you seen over the years? Like, how has crowdfunding changed, especially on Kickstarter over those last uh, you know four four years or so? I, I think it's it's changed quite dramatically. The number of projects on there has skyrocketed, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure the number of users has, has not kept pace with how fast projects have come on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a lot of copycat projects, which has kind of um, created backer fatigue. So it's harder to stand out. There's fewer backers um, willing to, to try out something that looks as, as um, what's the word? amateur maybe as mine did when I first started. So it's kind of like, it's, it's unfortunate in a way because it means that, um, it's more, um, it's, it's these more like established, you might call them makers that are, that are, you know, being able to be successful there. There's not a great way in their algorithms to highlight the, um, the the new makers who are just getting started and there's not as much backer interest in those projects so it's not just a a question of of kickstarter and it's not a question of the um uh, of these semi-professional makers i think it's more just the backers are are voting with their money and uh, it's it's becoming more difficult for someone like where i was four years ago to to get a lot of attention and to to get started so what's your approach like today? Like, How has it changed when you are launching? Let's say you have a campaign you want to launch in the next couple of months. Like, how do you approach it differently now to stand out in a much more uh, competitive uh, Kickstarter environment? Yeah, I think video and, and images um, have become more important. It's not to say that there aren't um, 
campaigns out there that don't buck the trend. Um, sometimes it can be re- refreshing to see a project that uh, that doesn't doesn't add all those things in. It feels like it's more raw, and if if it's the right equation, um, it can work out really well. But more often than not, uh, you've you've got more success with having good images, good video. The other thing I learned was to keep the rewards as simple as possible because they become a nightmare to to organize and to fulfill. And any kind of um, variable that you add into to your rewards, you'll have people asking all kinds of, of permutations for that variable in, in their reward. And I get it from their perspective. It's like, hey, you know, this is a this is a community. Can you just do this one thing for me? It's not that big of a deal. And when it's the when from them, their, their perspective, it's the only email they're sending out that night. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But when you get when you get ten of those a day, and you're already behind on other things that you're trying to do to keep your business running successfully, and you're trying to start this new project um, and hoping that you're not going double or nothing on it, and you get all these other requests coming in where it's permutations where the backer. You know, really would be happy with just with, if that if that variable hadn't existed, they they never would have known the difference, and they'd be totally happy. <laughs> it then is a is a distraction and, and a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, it's like a Pandora's box. Once you give them the once you give them the idea that they could customize the rewards, then they're going to start thinking of uh, options to to add or to throw so at you. Keep it simple. Gotcha. Makes sense. So where do you think um, crowdfunding will go in the next year or so? Are there any new opportunities you think are opening up because of the I guess, evolution of crowdfunding? I'm not sure where the community will go. Um, I know where we're going. We're trying to, to help other makers get that initial start to, um, to kind of bridge the chasm between their idea and, uh, and getting to a larger audience. So we've been um, working with a few makers who have just like come ac- you know come across us and reached out trying to get help getting started and um, are bringing their products to to retail um, for them. So that's an interesting model that I would like to see shake up the industry so that there aren't these gatekeepers uh, you know charging five thousand dollars to attend a trade show that you have to be willing to shell out. You have to be at you know at a large enough scale in order for that to make sense to be able to take that risk to get the chance to get there. And there's so many hurdles along the way that that stumble small makers and, and make them fall before they can they can make it across that chasm that I was describing that um, we don't see their products in the market. And so I'd like to see more of these products uh, stick around as as um, as a long-term option for consumers and not just a one-time um, project of interest, which is what the, uh, the community oftentimes has become. Mm, yeah, I, I like that idea of looking to partner, looking for people that have gone down the road before you and working with them and getting their kind of mentorship to to get into these channels or to maybe even help you help them run a Kickstarter campaign, help them get some visibility rather than going to these gatekeepers like you're talking about, rather than going shelling out all this money to go out to these trade shows or launching on Kickstarter when you, there's so much saturation already. Trying to find people that have already been on that path and reach out to them and see how 
how you guys can work together. I think that's a great piece of advice. I've heard this previously too from other entrepreneurs that haven't gone down the traditional route and look for partners of of existing companies that are sometimes same size as them, uh, but you know, ideally slightly bigger than them, slightly further along than them, and partnering with them because there's definitely things that you guys can can learn and help with help each other with, and it doesn't have to be you know strictly like a monetary, uh, I guess, trade. So um, the holiday shopping season is definitely officially here, especially once this episode goes live. You have a very giftable product, you know, because of like you're saying, it's very uh, general, I guess. It, 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 a lot of uh, the market understands what the product does. It's at a price point that makes sense as a gift. What are you guys doing to to prepare for for the, I guess, what have you done to prepare for the holiday shopping season? Um, well, we've been trying to build up inventory and we've been um, doing a revamp of our website that will hopefully go live um, before Black Friday. And both of those things strive to, um, you know, once again, use like the best kind of images and videos that, that we have uh, on the site. Where right now, it's, um, the site has been static for almost two years. So it doesn't adequately represent um, the, the brand that we want people to know about. You know, these qualities that I was talking about that we tried to exude with the packaging early on, um, I'm not sure that it comes through on our, on our site. So um, the easiest thing you can do to really stand apart and make your site pop is, is photos. So I, I finally bit the bullet and paid a uh, professional photographer to do a shoot with us to, um, to get the photos we need. And, you know, he started off with a, with a grand plan. He was a great guy. I really enjoyed working with him, but it was a really expensive proposal he put in front of me and I pushed back and he was willing to, to consider a smaller outset um, to get started with, with a set of photos that can help us define the brand, see some success on the site, know that it's worth spending more money on, on this type of thing to improve it in the future. Very cool. So it looks like a revamp with the website is something that's on the horizon, more photos. Anywhere else you want to see that the brand itself go in the next year or so? Um, you know, the other thing that I, I think is a, a great way to, to draw more interest is to do more of what I'm best at, which is design products. New products, you know, provide opportunity for, for marketing and get people to, to pay attention to, to your, your brand. So launching new products is a good way to get people to rediscover our old products. So mm. it's tough to balance all these different business needs while trying to still work on the original thing that I did, which was to just sit down and design a product. Now I'm trying to do that thing that I was able to do 100 iterations of in one month you know, over a, a six month period. <laughs> Yeah, trying to get uh, an iteration in about like a day. Yeah, you got a lot more juggle these days. So uh, yeah, thanks so much again for your time, Nate. So utilitytools.com again is a website. Anywhere else you recommend a listeners go and check out if they want to learn more about what you're up to, these new products that are coming out? You know, you can always uh, find our pro- projects on Kickstarter. Uh, if you search for me, Nate Barr, you'll, you'll find the projects. You can learn more about all the features and kind of the history of them. And then click through to to find the website to see where you can you can get them yourself. Very cool. Again, thanks so much again for your time, Nate. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit Shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.